Merry Christmas. He is risen. Christ has died. I haven't trained that one enough, but good for you if you got it. One more time. Merry Christmas. We're going to be doing Bible study this morning, so please find page 573 of your pew Bible, or if you've got your own Bible, it's a good thing to bring church with you, kind of a crazy idea. Go to church, bring a Bible. Lutherans? What? Yeah. You know the word of God, you know the sword, then you can use it. If you don't know the sword, you can't use it. So that's what we're doing. We're going to learn the sword. Isaiah chapter 9. We've spent two months getting to this point. We just did Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 3, all the way since Thanksgiving, all the way through Lent, all the way to get to this point with this text about this child who is born, who is named, well, in chapter 7, Emmanuel, but now here called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the man on whose shoulders the government will be forever. You want a pastor not to preach about politics? Huh. The government's on Jesus' shoulders. All governments, every time, every place. Nothing's outside of his control. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. But of course, if you've been tracking with me through Isaiah 1 through 8, you know, there's not a lot of Jesus of Nazareth obviously there. In fact, there's a whole lot more about Ahaz. This bad king, Ahaz, right? I'm not going to tell his whole story today, but it's a big part of understanding what's going on, right? To know what Isaiah means when he says what he says. Because one of the hardest things about Isaiah chapter 9 is what happens after verse 7, uh, verse 8. There it is. Uh, yeah, after verse 7. Look at verse 8. We're actually going to start there. We're going to go through the end of the chapter from verse 8. We're going to come back and do the front. And the reason is because it's really bad news. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is amazing. The government's on his shoulders. And then so much bad news. And so if you're just reading this on your own as a Christian at home, you're like, oh, good, a part about Jesus. Wait, what? What is this talking about? And that's my goal this morning is to help you see what it's talking about, which was first indeed a prophecy to this bad king Ahaz that was fulfilled in the good king Hezekiah. We won't tell his whole story today, but we've, we've touched on it a bunch, right, in the last couple of weeks. You can't understand the book of Isaiah without the story of Hezekiah. Chapters 37 to 39, you'd think that would be at the front to tell you what it meant, but it's not. You've got to get to the middle to find it. In any case, the good king Hezekiah gets to be the promise that God will not let the nation of Assyria destroy the nation of Judah. Isaiah tells this ahead of time before Hezekiah is born. It comes true. Everyone says, Isaiah is a true prophet. Let's keep his book. And they did. But his book said a bunch of other stuff that, well, we're still waiting for, actually. Lion laying down with the lamb, stuff like that. And we'll get a little of that today, too. Now, every boot for soldier's foot, fuel for the fire. Huh? We're still waiting for the fullness of all of this, even though, again, it wasn't it was fulfilled by hezekiah but not completely it was then fulfilled by jesus completely he is in charge of everything there is nothing but peace in him the lion does lay down with the lamb in him in fact he'll still your soul he'll quiet your conscience huh? 
But this is all through faith right now. We, of course, want to see the full revelation by sight. Isaiah tells us that new heavens and earth will come. We'll get there. That's much later in the book, too, though. So that's our context here, okay? And what we're going to look at first is the words of God's wrath against the Judah who he's going to save from Assyria about how much he's not going to save them until the last moment because they don't believe he's going to save them. So he's going to make them wait. He's going to put them in a lot of pain and trial. He's going to try to get their attention, actually. Kind of shaking the leash a little bit. Come on. It's going to read pretty rough, though. It's horrible stuff. It was the destruction of a city in the ancient world. It's barbaric. Okay, so get ready. This isn't Christmas morning stuff right here. It's barbaric. But it's going to be right next to the Christmas morning stuff. And so to look at the Christmas morning stuff, we got to get through the barbaric. And you're welcome. I'm putting the bad news first and we'll do the good news second. But it's written, good news then bad news. Okay. All right. So here we go. Verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. Remember, Israel is the northern kingdom that is assaulting Judah. They're the threat to Judah along with Syria. Yeah? But it, uh, God's design to save them by destroying Israel, it's going to spread out to all of Israel. So while Israel is the north, it is also the way of talking about both the northern and southern kingdoms under David and Solomon. Right. So here, again, the Lord has sent a word against kind of everybody is what he's saying. And all the people will know. Ephraim, that's the way of talking about the northern kingdom. And the inhabitants of Samaria, that's the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel. Okay, Against all these people who say in pride, in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. So he's going to bring wrath against all of the city and the nation. Because of the arrogance of the people who say something that, oh my goodness, does it sound familiar? I'm going to say it again. The bricks have fallen. We'll put back stones. The sycamores are cut down. We'll put in cedars. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like build back better. It's actually what it means. They're saying to themselves at this time, it's nothing to do with our current situation. Nothing. Whatever that means, that means. This is what they're saying right then. Well, if something goes wrong, we'll fix it. If we can, in fact, uh, if God makes some punishment come upon us, we'll we'll turn to the Baals. It'll be okay. The work of our hands will save us. They're saying to themselves that God isn't responsible for them. And that's why he's going to keep putting pain on them. So verse 11, the Lord, that's Jesus, raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. Rezin is uh, the king of Damascus, that Syria is one of the nations in league with the northern kingdom to attack Judah. Moving fast on that history, we've covered it, if you remember it. yeah. Uh, he's going to make Rezin have more power over Israel than they're expecting, is what he's saying there. So that, verse 12, the Syrians, that's Rezin, on the east and the Philistines on the west, that is in a sandwich maneuver, all your enemies got you in a pincher move, they will devour Israel with an open mouth. And this isn't even the real enemy. Assyria is the real enemy. These are just the little weaklings. These are the smoldering wicks, right? Rezin, the king of Damascus. Who's that? God has said recently. And here they are. They're going to put Israel in great trial because of their arrogance, because they think so much of themselves. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. 
that's going to be a refrain that shows up again in the chapter and again in the next chapter. So basically, it's like lots of bad news, but you won't even pay attention. Lots of bad news, but I haven't got your attention yet. Lots of bad news, and okay, I got your attention. Now I can tell you something else. Only this is happening historically, right? He's preaching to them that the wrath of God is coming upon them, and they're not changing. They're not mending their ways. They're not repenting. And so he's going to send more. And he's going to send more, and he's saying, I'm going to send more, and you still won't repent? So I'll have to send more. And then guess what? You're not going to repent. So I'll have to send more because I got to get your attention. You're not listening, right? It's a big cry from Isaiah that the people aren't listening. Yeah? So verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, right? He's, he's striking them. He's like, wake up, wake up. And they, and they won't wake up. They did not turn to him, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. That means pray. Huh? They didn't pray. They didn't ask. What's going on, Jesus? Why won't you help us? You, you hear at St. Paul, you know, it's been my plea to you. We want to become a house of prayer, not a den of thieves, right? We want to be people who ask Jesus specifically for what we want out of life, out of our community, and out of this congregation. If we want to see things here, we need to not try to make them happen. We need to ask for them and believe that Jesus is the God who answers prayer. Going on, verse 14. So, since no one's praying, uh, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. That's kind of a metaphor, cutting off a head and a tail, right? both sides of the dog. There you go. Yeah, but he's going to explain what that means. What's the head, the tail? Verse 15. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. Right. So you have your, your statesman, your leader. This could be a boss at work. This could be a king of a country. Anybody who's in an elite leadership role they're the head that's not paying attention. Huh? And the false prophet, this could be a pastor who teaches something nonsensical. This could be the guru doing yoga on YouTube. This could be the dietitian telling you you have to do this in order to have a healthy, whole wellness and life. This is then the tail wagging the dog. Huh? And God's going to cut off both head and tail, both false teacher, false prophet, and selfish or godless leader. Verse 16, for those who guide this people have been leading them astray, right? If you've got leaders leading you astray, you really don't want to follow them anymore. And so God's got to stop that. He's got to stop the wicked leaders. He's got to give us a good king. That is really where all this is going. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. God sees that uh, most people cannot resist false teaching. It's not in you. You're not that strong. Uh, if you put yourself in front of a little box that talks to you for 10 hours a day, I don't care how clever and intelligent and special you are, you're going to believe what it says on some level. You're just going to. Uh, and God knows we're just not that strong. And so he has to come in and get our attention. He has to come in and stop us from being swallowed up. But he's saying this is the problem. They're being swallowed up by liars. Uh, so I'm going to cut off the head. I'm going to cut off the tail. Verse 17. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and their widows. That, that's a way of saying, why is everything going wrong? Everything in society is going wrong. That's why Isaiah is having happened. It's all wrong. God doesn't seem to be blessing anything. Why is that? Why is that? And that's a worthwhile question to ask today. Why, why is that? Why are things the way that they are? Oh, wait. Well, in Isaiah's day, it was because everyone is godless and an evildoer. And every mouth speaks folly. 
Look around sometime. Look around sometime. Everyone is godless and an evildoer. Your mouths speak folly. How would you know? How would you know the difference between folly and wisdom? There's a whole book about it in the middle of the Bible. You should read it. That'd be how you should know. For all this, the fact that everything's in folly, no one's doing what they want, things are collapsing everywhere, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He's going to bring the fire. Verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. Notice how wickedness is its own punishment there. Wickedness is its own punishment there. The fire of wickedness, when you do wicked things, it burns you. You can't do evil and not have evil be what happens. It seems so obvious, but it, it kind of isn't, though. We like to think we can kind of hide it, kind of cover it up a little bit, put a little soap on it or something. Yeah, But wickedness is stickier than that. Yeah? It burns like a fire. And so when God lets the people go ahead and just keep becoming more wicked, more godless, it's going to bring about disaster. Like He doesn't have to smite you from heaven with fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. He can just let you destroy yourselves. That's what's going to happen to Israel here. Okay. And it's already happening. They're in a civil war. They're in a civil war, and it's going to destroy the entire north and put Judah with their back to the wall with one city left against the greatest empire in the world. And if God did not sweep in with a host of angels to stop it, it wouldn't have been stopped. They would have all been dead. And there's the mercy of God, right? We're talking about the wrath. The wickedness is its own punishment in order to understand that God's promise in Jesus is to save you. (laughs) It's to save you. Yeah. So, but here's more. Wickedness is the fire. It consumes briars and thorns. Think about your backyard fire, right? You want to burn that fallen down branch. You don't put the big, thick branch in the middle and just light it with a torch. Huh? You got to put a little bunch of tindling in there, the, the thorns and the grasses. You get it going. And how's that burn? Much better than the wood initially. It goes right up. This is the point. Wickedness burns like fire right up, like branches, like kindling, right? It kindles the thickets of the forest. They roll upward in a column of smoke. Now you got a forest fire from the wrath of God, letting your wickedness get out of control. Verse 19, through the wrath of Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. So he's letting this happen and it's actually again his wrath and it's causing destruction. So step back for half a second. The first time you look out there at the world you see today, you say, what's wrong with it all? How did it all get this way? Remember, the answer is Jesus made it that way. He let it do that. So the better question is, what's Jesus getting about letting it be like this? What's he after? Why is he not giving us wealth and prosperity? Why? Yeah. The land is scorched because of him. And the peoples are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Well, see, he's removed his hand. And so it's like the opposite of love your neighbor as yourself, right? No one spares another. That's, that's I don't love my neighbor at all. Huh? And that's what's happening in Judah and Israel at this time. And they're not repenting. They're not hearing God's warning. Uh, chokes, like, wake up, wake up. Here's some pain, here's some pain. They're not hearing it. So he's letting them get to the point where they're completely at each other's throats. Verse 20, they slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. That is, whatever they do, it doesn't actually bring any peace. Again, take a step back and look at the world you're in right now. Go, go look at or think about all the Christmas imagery you've seen shopping. I mean, it's not a sin to shop, but golly, is it painful. If you watch, if you look, how people act, how empty their lives are. 
Consume, 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 consume. Can I have some more? Consume, consume, consume. Oh, man, I wish I had some more. I need more money. I got to go work harder. Consume, consume, consume. Huh? But not satisfied. Imagine eating a giant steak and still being hungry. I don't think if you try, you can't. You'll, you'll eat a steak, you'll be satisfied. But he's saying here, no matter what you do, when I've turned my back on you, you're not going to find peace. Not going to happen. Huh? And so verse 21, Manasseh devours Ephraim. And Ephraim devours Manasseh. That's not only the northern kingdom, that's two brothers. Those are the sons of Joseph. Those are the people about whom the rest of Israel said, God's blessings on you, your prosperity is so good. May everyone else have what you have because then the world will be great. They said it like this. They said, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. That was a blessing in Israel because their life was so good. They were such a strong tribe or set of tribes, these two brothers. They had a huge swath of territory in the north, but here they are devouring each other. Civil war. Civil war in the home. Together they are against Judah. Everyone for themselves. Last man standing. For all this, his anger is not turned away. And his hand is outstretched still. It's it's not going to end until the the Rabshakeh, who's a leader of the Assyrian army, stands at the gates of Jerusalem and shouts in Hebrew how all the people are going to eat their own feces and then be killed. And the counselors who he's talking to say, don't say it in Hebrew. Say it in Aramaic. We can understand Aramaic, and they can't. So don't say it to them. He's, he turns these shells at the people. No, 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 I'm talking to you. Throw out Hezekiah. His God won't save you. That moment when Rabshika says, his God won't save you, Hezekiah is actually in the temple saying, Jesus, save me. And that night, again, angel armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, he sends his great armies and just destroys that contingent of the Assyrian army. So they flee back to where the king is. And the king, at the same moment, the the broken army gets back to him. He hears a rumor that something's wrong at home. He goes back home. His own kids murder him. Judah's saved. Yeah, That's where all this is going. Where Hezekiah, that son who is born, who has the government on his shoulders, and what does he do? He prays. He does fulfill the prophecy that is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, the son who is born to do more than just pray, to atone like a high priest with the sacrifice of his flesh and blood, dying on the cross to defeat death. And the early part of the text, chapter 9, and we'll go back a page again, we'll get the rest of the verses here. The early part of the text is going to ring with that story. It's hard, it's not hard, it's impossible as a Christian not to hear Jesus in these words. It's like it's not even about Hezekiah at all. And in a sense, that's true. It's not. It's about Jesus. But understand also that this is in the context here. This is first fulfilled in a small way by Hezekiah. And then that life that Hezekiah lived of being the praying king who God answers with salvation, that's who Jesus fulfills. He is that man, not only for a little city in the Middle East, a little rock, but for for all, for the whole world. Okay, so chapter 1, verse 9. This is... Verse 1 really belongs in chapter 8, just kind of in the side. It, has, it, it doesn't flow, so be ready for that. Um, it should have been the last verse of chapter 8. Uh, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Um, in short, that means... 
I let things go bad in the northern country, but something good's going to happen even in that northern country. And there's a lot we could dig into this. This gets picked up on by the apostles and the gospels as why Jesus did his ministry in Galilee. There's a lot there, more than we have time for this morning. But it's leading to this idea that even though God is going to send a punishment, even though he's going to let wrath do what it does against wickedness, he still always intends it for grace. He still always intends it to bring you to repentance and to then raise you up from where you've been cast down. In that sense, then, he still always intends it to be light, not darkness. And so where you sit in darkness, blindness, unable to see, not able to wake up on your own, he might smack you on the head sometimes. It's to get you to wake up and see the light. And that's what he's going to sing about now, really, how he's seen the light. Isaiah has seen the light. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I don't, can you imagine this? Like, I know you probably can get up in the middle of the night and make it to the, uh, the toilet uh, without having to turn a light on. Probably. Yeah. Do you ever see that Dr. Seuss book? Uh, do you know how lucky you are? With like the guy who had to run across the mansion to get to his toilet. Did you ever see that one? No one? Am I the only person? Who, one, thank you. My son, of course. Uh, uh, do you know how lucky you are, Dr. Seuss? I, I always thought that was like, I was really happy not to be that guy. Because um, he had to run like a mile in the middle of the night. Imagine moving in darkness, total darkness, pitch black darkness, right? And you don't know where you are. It's not your bedroom. You're kind of in a new place. So how do you find your way? That's what making decisions about tomorrow is kind of like. Trying to know what's going to happen next, what you need to be prepared for, how to be ready. It's like walking in darkness. Now imagine somebody turns the light switch on. Boof, you see it all. Oh, I know where I am. I can see where I am. Okay, well, this is Jesus. This is the wisdom of the scriptures. This is Psalter prayer, but it's, it's the proclamation of the gospel too. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what these ancient Judeans were as well. They were Christians praying to the true God who is Jesus. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. I should probably connect that land of deep darkness to the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah, but that's the real enemy we got. Is death, and even death can't hurt us anymore because of Christ. So we sing, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. To know the hope of everlasting life in Jesus Christ is to have great joy. Like something very specific here. And he gives two symbols, two pictures of what joy is like in Christianity. First, as they rejoice before you at joy with the harvest. All right, so we don't have this unless you're a farmer. And even our farmers today don't have harvest quite the same way you used to. I mean, it really was all about surviving the winter. That was what it was about. And you were getting in enough food to make sure that you would have food until the sun came out again in, in March, right? Uh, and so when you're done with that, when you've cleared the fields and you have enough bounty and you've dried the pieces you need to and then you're going to have a pretty big feast because well you kill the cow and it's not going to last because it's not cold enough to freeze it in the back in the ground yet right so you got to kill it we're going to we're going to feast and we're going to celebrate the fact that we have enough right joy as if you have enough contentment and joy are closely related here but there's also this really strange line a very strange line and they are glad when they divide the spoil this one's hard to imagine. When was the last time you were happy because you beat somebody up and took his stuff? It's pretty hard to imagine, right? I, I, that was wrong, isn't it? Well, uh, probably. 
But when you, well, maybe win a game, I guess that's the American version that's close. When you have an enemy who has a sword and wants to kill you and do evil things to your daughters, and then you use your sword and you stop him and he has a bunch of gold and now it's yours, like there's something that's kind of joyful about that. You were saved from your enemy and it benefited you. I'm not really advocating you go out and try this in the workplace, okay? Don't get me wrong. It's just the metaphor here again, the joy that we have as Christians as, is as of plundering the enemy. Now remember what I say, who's the enemy? Death and the devil. Huh? How are we plundering him? We're going to rise from the dead. He can't, he can't have this body. He can't have this body. We're going to rise from the dead. Plundered him. I'm the treasure found in the field. Jesus found me. Yeah? He went and sold all to have me. You too. Yeah, plunder, the plunder of everlasting life. It's beautiful stuff. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Just kind of stop there. Three things, right? Yoke, staff, rod, all tools for making animals do what you want them to do. But referring to men making Christians, Israelites, do things they don't want to do being oppressed by wicked men, yeah? And all these oppressions of wicked men, God has broken as on the day of Midian. That's a reference to Gideon. Remember that one. Gideon, the unbeliever, uh, threshing meal in hiding because the, uh, the Philistines are stealing it. Huh? He's called by the angel of God to go save the people, you mighty man. He's like, who? Who are you talking to me? Yes, you mighty man. Are you sure? How about this fleece? Make it wet. Well, I'm not sure yet, right? He keeps testing God, testing God, testing God. But he finally gets this big old army. And he's going to go and stop Midian, who are the ones that at this time are seriously oppressing them. And God says, this is kind of the important part of the day of Midian, um, tell everybody who's a coward to go home. He tells the people that. And a lot of them leave. A lot of them leave. And God's like, don't worry about it. I'm going to win today, not you. You're just going to be my tool today. Huh? So check this out. You think that too many left? Uh, how about have them all drink some water? And based upon the ones that are weird, they drink weird, you only keep those. Huh? 300. 300 guys. And then they go and they, they, they route Midian. Why? Because God's doing the fighting. That's why. So the day of Midian, God doing the fighting, breaking the oppression of men who are doing evil things to push you down, but more than that of the devil himself, who is trying to keep you down with your head, gazing at your belly all the time as if this life is the only one that matters. Damn fool. Damn fool. He's broken it. He set you free. He's raised you up. He is risen. Mm. Merry Christmas. We're almost done. Verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood would be burned as fuel for the fire. Imagine after God sends the angels to destroy the Assyrian army coming out as the normal people of the city. You just yesterday heard them shouting how you were going to die with your own feces shoved down your throat. And instead they're all lying on the ground dead. What do you do with all their boots? They're going to stink. You go and you put it all on the fire. You burn it all up. All the enemies of God are going to be all burned up at some point. There's a lot of typology there, yeah. But it's also a promise of peace. No more, no more soldiers. 
No more fighting. That, that's what's coming on the last day. No more war. That's why we look forward to it. Because from this child, right? To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And he wasn't just Hezekiah. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He died and he rose again in order to make a better world come. And that government, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, it's already on his shoulders, nailed to a cross, crowned with thorns, and yet unconquerable, indefatigable, insatiable, alive forevermore. And so his name, proven to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, all clearly ascriptions to the Godhead, which is where Hezekiah is kind of like, what, what, Hezekiah is this? No, I guess he's not really this after all. Who is? Jesus. Jesus is. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The kingdom of God, that's the way the New Testament talks about the government of Jesus. The kingdom of God will continue to increase forever. Churches might close. Church doesn't close. Christians might wander and cease to believe, but Christianity is going nowhere except for to paradise. It's going to last forever. Yeah? The reign of God is here to stay, and he lives in his own words, which are given to you to hear, to read, to mark, to learn, to inwardly digest, so that what goes in becomes what comes out of the increase of that, yeah, and of peace as a result. There will be no end on the throne of David. That's part of the promises and over his kingdom. That's again, the reign to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this last little point for this morning, justice, righteousness, and zeal. Okay. Those two words there, justice and righteousness are twins. They play tag in the Old Testament all the time. They show up with each other. Mishpat u Zedek. Okay? Mishpat, that's judgment. Zedek, that's justice or sometimes righteousness. I like to think of them as measurement and accuracy. But what's important is that while they're twins, they always show up with each other in the Bible. They usually have a third partner. They play with other words together. And those words are connected. And the word that's here in this verse, that's kind of the, uh, the odd triplet to Mishpat and Zedek, justice and judgment. The, the twin here is zeal. Okay, so what I'm going to try to do is explain judgment and justice as being impossible without zeal. Okay, you want to be measuring something accurately? You have to pay attention. You have to care. You can't be flying by on the thing. And so if you want to have things be good, full attention needs to be paid to them. And here's the rub. Look who's paying attention in this verse. It ain't you. The zeal of Jesus will do this. He's stretching out the measuring line. He's building the platform. He's setting up the walls. He's planning and executing the reign of God forever and ever. And it is his zeal. That's the word jealousy. That's the word passion. That's the word commitment is going to achieve this. So yeah, we already saw that happen when Jesus was born. Achieved. Jesus died. Achieved. Jesus risen. Achieved. 
you believe achieved. In the name of Jesus, 